I want to pose a question for you as we begin this morning, which is this. Um, what are the most important spiritual disciplines for someone who follows Jesus? Like what, are the, what are the core practices that sort of mark a Christian? Um, you know, things that, that it's more than something we do, but it actually becomes part of who we are. Like as I think about that question, it seems like a really straightforward Simple question, right? But the way we answer that question uh, has a lot of implications. And as I sort of look around and think about how do the people around me, uh, people in various churches that I've interacted with, how do they seem to, you know, answer that question? What are the core practices? Um, kind of typically comes out this way. Go to church. You're doing a good job of that this morning. Um, read your Bible and pray, right? That's, that's commonly sort of the core things. All very good, by the way. And there are these other practices that we seem to know we should be a part of, and, and to some extent, we're probably doing them. Things like forgiving other people, telling people about Jesus, serving other people. There's a number of these practices that we recognize, yeah, this is part of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. But as I think about this question, it helps to go back and ask, what did the earliest Christians do? How would they answer this question? What were the practices that marked their lives? I'd be careful with that question because they weren't perfect, uh, but we do want to just consider how, how did the early church sort of answer this question? Well, if we go to Acts, we are going to get back to 1 Corinthians this morning, if you're wondering. We're not done with it yet. Um, but if you go to Acts, we have, and by the way, Acts is this book that comes after the four gospels, and it really is the story of the birth of the church and what happened uh, to become what we're a part of today. So in Acts chapter 2, if you're welcome to turn there, we get one of these two scenes early on that gives us just a picture into what life was like at the very beginning uh, for this thing we call the church, what these people were doing, what their practices were. In Acts chapter 2, picking up in verse 42, this is this moment that comes right after this incredible scene on the day of Pentecost when this about a hundred followers of Jesus, all of a sudden this miraculous moment transpires and thousands of people respond to the gospel and all of a sudden you have thousands of people to care for, right? And so this is uh, the picture we get, the first picture really of the church. It reads this way. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread, by the way, that's eating together, good thing, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together, and they had everything in common. By the way, that doesn't mean they agreed on everything. We'll kind of dig into that in a moment. Verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day, they continued to meet in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, there, right off the bat, there are a few practices we notice. In fact, in verse 42, we see that they were devoted to a number of things. They were devoted to things like the apostles' teaching. They're learning about who Jesus is and how the scriptures speak of Jesus. They're devoted to fellowship. And, and this is more than like a potluck. This is life together, sharing in life together. They're devoted to breaking of bread. They were 
eating together and, and almost certainly remembering Christ as they were eating together, and they were devoted to prayer. Those are things that jump out uh, right away. Also, don't miss the fact that there was a sense of wonder and awe at what God was doing, which was something that marked them. And, and we get this line that they had everything in common. And then if you jump down to verse 45, we notice a couple more practices. Uh, really, they were devoted to one another is what these things look like. And, and that worked out in uh, people selling things to support others who had needs and in this constant meeting together. So that's the first scene we get, right? So if we jump forward two chapters later to Acts chapter 4, we have another one of these scenes. And this time the scene comes uh, just after Peter and John have been arrested, leads to a very large prayer gathering, uh, they're released, and then we're told this about this group of believers. This is sort of the second scene of the church that we get. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. How? That there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and laid it at the apostles' feet. There's a practice that is kind of obvious in both of these scenes. And in fact, I would argue it was probably the most visible practice that set these followers of Jesus apart. We read in Acts 4 that the, the message of Jesus and God's grace was uh, working powerfully among them. And how was that grace working? Well, we read that the grace was so powerfully at work among them that there were no needy people. Because those who were wealthier, who had property, who had homes, were going so far as selling those things to make that money available to care for people who had needs. Pretty remarkable group. In fact, again and again and again, as we go through the New Testament, we see this core practice is giving. It's generosity. And yes, we are talking about money this morning, just, just so you know. But there was this aspect of this practice in particular that, that it wasn't just religious giving. It was people giving of what they had to meet the needs of other people who had needs. It's this idea of generosity. And I would argue that it's quite clear through the Scriptures that one of the identifying marks of these people who were following Jesus was this radical generosity that seemed to be a constant. Now, I don't know if you realize this, because uh, we try not to talk about it in church a lot, but Jesus talked about money more than faith and prayer combined. It's probably the primary thing Jesus talked about. In 40 of his parables, 11 of them uh, refer to money. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, as he does in other places, says things that, frankly, are really uncomfortable. This is uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. You may know this. Uh, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think what Jesus is getting at is this reality that if we truly believe that life is eternal, 
then that will be reflected in how we invest of our resources. That we'll invest in things differently. That our treasure will be in different places and it's our treasure, Jesus says, that reveals our heart. I don't know if you've thought about that recently, but the way that you and I spend our money, the things we save for, they reveal our heart, but they also have an effect on our heart because our heart follows our treasure. And sometimes that leads to anxiety, right? Uh, Some of you have heard the story. Sorry to put you on the spot, son. Um, When he was three, he doesn't remember this, uh, we bought our Camry, and it was the only car we've ever bought new. And it was this major investment for us, right? So here we, we have this new car that we got this amazing deal on, and we come down to Eugene to see my parents. We're living up on the coast. We park in their cul-de-sac. We're sitting inside, and inexplicably, I look outside to see my son pick up a rock and throw it at our brand-new car. You probably don't remember that, do you? Left a little dent and admittedly created some anxiety because we just bought this thing, and, and my heart was attached to something I invested in. Now, if you go out today and look at that same camera, there's a big dent in the door and, you know, all sorts of stuff going on. But that's a reminder to me, that experience, that it's true, isn't it? When we put our money, our treasure into something, it gets a hold of our heart. Sometimes in good ways, sometimes in negative ways. Now, just a few verses later, Jesus makes it a clear kind of what he's getting at. This is in verse 24. So just below that, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And just in case she's not clear on what he's talking about, he says you cannot serve both God and money. These are really strong words. I don't know if you realize this or have thought about this, but Jesus sets up money essentially as a rival God, challenging uh, for where our allegiance and our worship goes. And I've thought about, how does that work? Why, why, why does he say it this way? And as I think about that, I think the truth is that money empowers us to worship ourselves. It empowers us to put ourselves first. It, it's something we sense we have control over. And, and sometimes we don't realize it's not so much money that's the other God. It's, it's really we end up serving ourselves rather than God. If, if all I do with my finances is indulge in my own pleasure and comfort, then who's the priority, right? As I think about this, one of the challenging just thoughts or questions is, you know, my, my budget reveals what or who I worship. And, and so the, the uncomfortable question is then, what does my budget reveal, Right? This is part of this larger reality in the Bible that's a constant, really from the beginning to the end. This, and, and I think this is part of what Jesus is speaking to. In the beginning, God creates everything. Everything is God's. God creates these humans, and their role is to steward what God has made. And, and that is a continuation all the way through the Scriptures. And, and once Jesus comes on the scene and we're restored to God, the way that works out, in part, is stewarding the resources we have. That's part of, actually goes back to what we were created for, was to, to recognize that everything's God's, and our role is just to steward those things. 
Now, in the Gospels, Jesus talks about money in another, a number of different ways that are challenging. Jesus says things like, give to the one who asks you. He says that in Matthew 5.42. And the bummer is, he doesn't nuance it at all. It's just this black and white, somebody asks, give. I'd love to find a way to justify you know, ways around that, but it's a really clear statement. Uh, we also read that, that wealth, basically the security that we see in it can blind us of our real needs. There's, that idea comes up in Revelation. And, and as we see in this passage, money clearly isn't neutral in the way that Jesus teaches. It's either a positive or it's a negative. There's also individuals that we see responding to Jesus that that somewhere in there it's clear that money's a part of uh, the conversation or what's going on. One of those people, maybe the first one that comes to mind, uh, is a guy known as a rich young ruler. This is a person who clearly is respected. He's religious. In fact, he's coming to Jesus asking really a a religious or, or doctrinal question. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus discusses the law with him and the things that he believed. And then Jesus says this. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he said, one thing you lack. Go, sell everything you have, and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. There's that idea again. And then come follow me. By the way, I don't think Jesus is being uniquely hard on this guy. I think he's getting to the issue. He sees it. Well, how does he respond? It says that this the man's face fell, And he went away sad because he had great wealth. That's a really tough story. To me, that's a sobering story. And it's a tragic story. Because he didn't see that Jesus was more valuable than what he had. And and his heart was tied to those things. And it got in the way of his ability to follow Jesus. Well, there's another individual I think of that his interaction with Jesus clearly has to do with money. And if you grew up in church, maybe you sang about him. He's this wee little man, this short guy by the name of Zacchaeus. And and whereas we have this respected, religious, upright person who seems to want to follow Jesus, but money is the problem, gets in the way, and he doesn't end up doing that, we come to Zacchaeus who's totally not respected. His job is um, questionable. He's unscrupulous. He's wealthy as well. But how does Zacchaeus respond to Jesus? This is in Luke chapter 19. This is what we read. It says, when Jesus reached the spot, this is where Zacchaeus is. It says, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And then notice what happens. All the people saw this and they began to mutter. Because this is a disrespected guy who's got some issues, and they're muttering about Jesus. You know, he's, he's going to be the guest of a sinner. And it says, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, and this is probably in front of everybody else, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody, and probably he knows he cheated people, uh, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And so Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, which was a remarkable statement, because this man too is a son of Abraham. In other words, to this crowd, he's not this dirty outsider. He's responded to me. So we have this 
respected religious man who fails to follow Jesus because his wealth gets in the way, contrasted by this guy Zacchaeus who's not respected, who doesn't look good, who's unscrupulous. He's wealthy as well. But he immediately reflects his faith with his bank account. He's generous. He, he does more than I think most would. This is quite a wild response. He gives half of what he owns to the poor, and then from the remaining half, he says he's going to give quadruple whatever he wronged people. This type of response, if you look closely, actually resonated through the early church. Generously, giving was the assumed norm. That's what we see in Acts 2 and 4 that we looked at. We'll see some of that in 1 Corinthians here in a moment. It seems that this defined them from day one. And one way I would say this is the church seemed really comfortable looking a lot more like Zacchaeus than like the rich young ruler. They seem to be more like him than the religious guy. And, and again, Jesus speaks of our resources as something to be stewarded, to be invested in eternal things rather than just spent on our own pleasures. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this was the response of the early church, of these followers of Jesus. It shouldn't surprise us that they were marked by this practice of generosity, that it was this assumed reality, which we see uh, in a few verses in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 16. This is what Paul writes. This is towards the end of this very long letter that we've been unpacking together with all sorts of difficult issues. He says, now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. So they must know what he told the Galatian churches to do. He says, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. This is this sort of just matter-of-fact housekeeping statement, right? There's this really cool story underneath this, though. Notice, first of all, Corinth isn't the only church involved here. In fact, this collection is mentioned in a number of places. And where is it going? It's going to Jerusalem. Why does that matter? So this is money that's going to go to Jerusalem to assumedly Jewish Christians who are in poverty. In fact, this collection for these believers in Jerusalem was really a large driver of Paul's third missionary journey. And what's remarkable is that Corinth is largely Gentile Christians, people who aren't Jewish. And they're collecting money for their brothers and sisters who are ethnically Jewish. That's notable because Jews hated Gentiles. They refer to them as dogs sometimes. Even Peter in Acts clearly has to be convinced that Gentiles aren't second-class people. But rather than begrudging this or seeming to hold it over their Jewish brothers and sisters, what we have happening here is these Gentile believers are collecting funds to support the people who ethnically had been against them. One of the things I see in this that is often an outcome of generosity is it leads to unity. When people give 
for the needs of one another, there's a bond that often takes place there. But it's this beautiful picture that, in part, how they were reconciling with one another was giving, was being generous, was using their finances and their resources. Again, this isn't the only place Paul speaks of this collection to the Corinthians. In fact, if you want to read it later in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 8 and 9, if you read through that, you'll understand if I was to preach that, you would all get really angry at me (laughs) because he's incredibly direct about what he thinks and what they should give. uh, Worth reading. But he he speaks at this at some length. But what's interesting is how Paul speaks of it. Uh, In 2 Corinthians, for example... Paul speaks of this collection as fellowship, as service, as grace, as blessing, as divine service, making it clear that this isn't just a matter of money. But to Paul, this is a response to the grace of God. In fact, this is how the grace of God is at work. So just going back to these few verses in 1 Corinthians this morning, um, there's some things in here that I think are instructive for us that might help us. Uh, The first is not really profound, but it's this idea that generosity is a priority. It seems to come right on the front. What does Paul say? He says, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money. This is expected to be this practice that's going on long before he gets there so that they're ready when he arrives to have this significant gift to send to Jerusalem. It's a weekly practice. And it's not at the end of the week, it's at the beginning. It's a priority. Generosity is to be a priority in their practice and and in ours as well. Now, the second thing here is is it's proportional. Very clearly, he says this is proportional. It's, It's expected that we don't all give the same. Paul says to set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So if I make a healthy income, I should set aside more than those who don't. But everyone's to give in proportion to their income. And and to that end, here's here's one thing I know about all of us this morning, absolutely myself included. Whatever your income is, my income is, we're all capable of giving more. It's it's just true. There's, There's something in every one of our budgets. It might hurt, but there's something we could remove. All of us have that capability. We could give a bit more. It's just true. And as I think about my own budget, and, and you're probably with me in this, um, it's, it's expected and natural that we spend a lot of money on ourselves. That's, what, that's, the, that's the culture we swim in, right? That's what we're supposed to do, we think, with our money, is spend it on ourselves. And yet, we're all capable of, of this generosity. Also, as I think about this, I think there's this fallacy. I know I, I bought into it at some point, that if I just make more money, it'll be easier to give money away. I can tell you pastorally, one of the interesting things I've experienced is often it's just the opposite. It's it's people who make a whole lot of money, writing something proportional, feels like it hurts because there's more zeros on that check, right? It actually gets harder for some people to give proportionally as they make more because, man, I'm letting go of a chunk of change, right? I would say this, it's my experience that our giving isn't regulated 
so much by our bank account as it is by our heart and our priorities. It's a direct statement. It's true of me. It's true of you. Um, Obviously, we have limitations, but when you really come down to it, for most of us, our giving isn't regulated by what's in our bank account. It's regulated by what we care about in, in our hearts. But giving is to be a priority. In fact, I would go this far as saying I don't believe it's possible to be obedient as a follower of Jesus and not give, not be generous. And just to be clear, I'm not talking in the constraints of a Sunday morning offering. I'm not talking about just a a religious practice. This is about who we are. This is about what's to mark us. And I don't believe, I'm becoming more and more convinced, in fact, I don't believe it's possible in any way to reflect Jesus effectively without being a person of generosity, without giving of my resources. Um, We also see here that generosity is driven by a concern for others. It isn't just uh, the money to keep their gatherings going in Corinth, but it's money for people they probably never met, people who aren't even like them, people they're not supposed to like. But somehow they feel this connection to these folks in Jerusalem through Jesus to the point that they have genuine care and they give sacrificially to to provide for their needs. This goes back to what Jesus said, that where our treasure is, our heart is also. We could flip that around and say that where our heart is, our treasure is going to go, right? And so if I have a genuine concern for people and their needs, that usually leads to greater generosity. The other thing that just stands out to me about these few verses is that generosity is assumed. Paul doesn't tell them to do this. He tells them how to do it. He already assumes they're doing this. This is something not to overlook, by the way. Because, again, you can go back through Acts. You can trace from the beginning of the story of the church in the New Testament. Consistently, it is assumed that followers of Jesus are generous, that we give, that we care for the needs around us. In fact, this is arguably one of the things that made the church so attractive in its culture, was you were looking at a group of people that no one was needy because they were meeting the needs of one another. Historically, we know of times where the church was doing remarkable things in its culture, being generous even to people who hated them. And that's what they were known for. That's what made the church attractive. It was this willingness to give even in hard ways for the sake of others. Again, it wasn't just something they did, but it seemed to define who they were. So we live in a culture that deeply values individuality. We live in a culture where we're not supposed to talk about stuff like this, right? It's supposed to be uncomfortable. Money is this hush-hush, private subject, especially on Sunday morning, right? We forget that generosity is to mark us, that, that it's to be who we are. And I think because of our culture and not wanting to talk about it, kind of keep it in the back, we end up minimizing the value. This often isn't seen as a core practice of following Jesus. It's something like maybe the really religious Jesus people do, right? And yet, at the core of responding to Jesus, something Jesus is very clear about, is the way we interact 
with the resources that we steward. Again, Jesus says, where treasure is, our heart's there also. He says, you can't serve both money and God. I'm going to have allegiance to one or the other. And if I'm to be really blunt and honest this morning, I'll say this. I think the American church looks a whole lot more like the religious young ruler than we do like Zacchaeus. And I would say, I think we actually want to look like that because that's respectable, that looks religious, that's you know clean, and, and then it, I don't have to do the hard stuff. If I'm just honest, I think that's what the American church looks like. I don't think we're known as generous people in our culture nearly as much as we're known as judgmental people or religious people or these other things. I, I think the rich young ruler may reflect our values more than we realize. And yet generosity is at the core of our response to Jesus because our faith is founded on the reality that God gave generously He gave love to us through Jesus that we could never earn or deserve. We read that the source of every good thing is God. And and what we celebrate this morning is, is not that we did enough to make it in. Not that we were religious enough to merit God's love. Our, Our faith informs us that in fact God's love is a gift, an amazing gift. We sang about this. Our faith informs us that it's God's faithfulness that's at the root of everything we enjoy. And so it, it actually makes sense, doesn't it, that, that our response to God's generous love towards us would be, at least in part, extending that kind of generosity to others. And one of the ways we have, one of the levers we have the most control over is our finances. That's one of the ways we show that. Again, generosity is in large part how we are able to demonstrate what God's love looks like. When we give things that aren't earned, when we give things that aren't deserved, when we give sacrificially, we're demonstrating what God's love looks like. And again, this is part of the story. If we go back to the very beginning, God creates everything. He puts these first humans in a garden to steward His creation to see good come of it. And we're created for that same work. And when Jesus comes in and we're restored to new life, it's like we recapture the ability to sort of do these things. But the primary means we have to live that out is actually our resources, our finances, and how we steward those things. So this morning, I can't get around the fact that obviously we're going to take an offering in a little bit. Um, and if this is your church home, I would strongly encourage you that, that giving is a regular part of worship. That's a good thing. If you feel nudged this morning, um, if, if this is home, you know that uh, once a month we, we take what we call mutual sharing fund offering. Um, that's money outside the budget that goes specifically to meeting needs in our church. And that's money that gets spent, just so you know, to care for needs. Um, if that's something like God is nudging you to be generous, that would be a great way to maybe... Do something different this morning. Um, you could use an envelope and write MSF on that or write it on a check. Um, but this is way bigger than what we do on Sunday morning. This is way bigger than being religious.
This is to be defining aspect of who we are, what we're known for, what we look like, what, what drives us is being people of generosity every day of the week. That's a challenging idea, isn't it? It is for me. Um, so I just want to share a few questions that have come up for me. Um, you might write these down. They might be helpful for you. <laughs> No-brainer, right? What keeps me from being more generous? That seems like an obvious question, but it, the, the answers aren't that obvious. Because as, as I dig deeper, it isn't, oh, like I don't have room in my budget. It's, it's I'm afraid. It's um, my heart's attached to some things. Right? Those, are, those are the limiting factors, oftentimes, for why I'm not gener- more generous than I am. It's a good question to sit in this week. You know, what, what keeps me from being more generous? Because the flip side of this that's so interesting is when you're able to meet a significant need for someone and see it make a difference in their life, it is so fulfilling and joyful, Right? And you would think we do it more when we experience that, but yet we still have these limiting things in our lives that keep us from being more generous. Here's another question. How can I make generosity a core practice of my faith? We see the example in in Corinthians that he says, you know, first of the week, set aside a sum of money. Be intentional about this. Have discipline. Have a practice. Um, But beyond just the doing, like, how can this become who I am? What are the simple practices I can put in place? You know, it may be, if you're one of those people that goes to Starbucks or Dutch Bros, it may be just assuming you're going to buy somebody else's coffee when you go in, right? Or it could be not buying coffee for a month and putting that money towards something else. It could be a lot of things. But what are the simple practices, the rhythms that you can pick up, that you can maybe just nudge yourself towards that, that would help generosity become a, the core of who you are? more practical what's one thing i can do differently to give more you know i maybe it's not having that cup of coffee maybe it's i live four blocks from church it's maybe walking to work instead of driving to save some gas i don't know why that seems so hard there are these little things we can do right that would open up some margin and we're going to actually talk about in a lot of aspects of our lives that idea of margin um, this coming year we often could just budget some money that isn't budgeted, that's set aside for needs, right? In your life, what, what's one thing that could be different, that's just practical, that would open up some of that margin, that space to be more generous? And then I don't know if this is a reality for you, but I would imagine most of us probably know somebody in need. Now, I'll preface this with, I don't believe we're supposed to meet every need of every person not possible. But I wonder in your life this morning, is, is there somebody that God would invite you to sacrifice for? To, to care for, to meet the needs of? And then one more question. How can I reflect Jesus in my budgeting and my spending decisions? How can my budget reflect that my heart belongs to Jesus. I don't know the answer completely for that, and it's probably different 
for you than for me? But isn't that a great question to be asking as we approach our budget? Like, how can I make this more and more and more reflect Jesus in what I'm doing here? You probably know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave, right? He gave His only Son. That whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but would have eternal life. That's our hope this morning. We're founded in this belief that through Jesus, God gave us forgiveness. God gave us reconciliation. God gave us the opportunity of living a new and different life. The basis of that is that God gave. And our response is to receive that with thanksgiving and to respond by and likewise being people defined by giving. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. And I would ask this morning that, first of all, no one would feel pressured um, to give money as a bag comes by that we wouldn't limit our focus to those kinds of things, but we would look bigger picture and recognize this, this is to be a defining characteristic of who we are. And so I would pray for, for us as a church. Would you help us to make whatever shifts are necessary that would be very clear that we would be known as people who are generous. Not just as a slogan, but in our consistent actions and in our values, and in our priorities. God, as individuals, as people who love you and follow you, would you help us to make whatever shifts we need to that the people around us would know us as generous, that they would see reflected in our priorities, even in our spending, your love. We come to you wanting to just be open-handed with the things you've entrusted to us. So we ask for your direction and your guidance. And I would ask for myself and everyone here, God, would you empower us to just be a little more generous this week? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.